The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. We're giving attention this morning to Luke 18, 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14. There Luke records for us these words. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. If you were with us last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 18, the first piece of this chapter. It was really a continuation of chapter 17, where Jesus is speaking about about his second coming, his return. And he talks about at the beginning of chapter 18, sort of the end of that segment of his teaching, uh, uh, about praying for his return and what it looks like to be the kind of people who are eagerly awaiting the second coming of Christ. And he ended that section with asking a question. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And he wants us to end that sort of section of his teaching reflecting on the reality of what kind of people is he going to find when he returns? Is he going to find a people who are of faith, a people who are faithful to him when he comes back, whenever it is that he comes back? Is he going to show up and find a people who are faithful to him? And it leaves us sort of wondering, well, what kind of people are the kind of people who are faithful to him all the way to the end? What kind of people are people of faith that persevere in their faith in such a way that whenever Christ returns, they'll find, they'll be found faithful? Well, the kind of people that are going to be found faithful when Christ returns are the kind of people who enter the kingdom of God by faith. They're the kind of people who enter on his terms. And it is to that issue that he immediately turns in the parable that we look at this morning. It is, like all other parables, a story that Jesus tells to illustrate a point. The parables are stories from everyday occurrences that are made up. They're intended by Jesus usually to convey one primary issue, one primary point. They were, in some ways, a means of communicating with his disciples in a way that they would understand, but in a way that his unbelieving opponents who were hostile to him would not understand. He said earlier on that these stories that he tells were meant to conceal the truth from those who have hardened hearts who don't want to hear, and at the same time to reveal the truth to those who are genuinely interested in what it is that he's teaching. They were, in a real sense, a means of communicating biblical truth to those who are interested, and at the same time, they were an act of judgment on unbelieving Israel. He was going to speak to them in stories that they would not understand because of their hardened hearts. And so here he's telling another story, another parable, to illustrate another uh, sort of truth about what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And all the parables are about that. They're about what it means to be a part of his kingdom, what it means, we could say, to be a Christian. And it is to this issue of what kind of people are the kind that are found faithful. They're the kind who enter the proper way into his kingdom, the only way that there is to enter his kingdom. And that is through humble faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to that issue that this parable 
speaks. You see, there are only really three kinds of people in the world around us. There are people who outright reject God and everything that has to do with him. They are either atheistic or they're just indifferent to what the Bible has to say about who God is and who people are and what it means to be a part of his kingdom. And and so they either just reject that outright or they just live lives that are utterly indifferent to those things or to those matters. They're just oblivious to it, don't care about it, aren't interested, not going there. That's the first category. There's another category of people. There are people who recognize that there is a God and recognize that there is an, an eternity beyond this life, but who think that they can get there and that the means to get there is by doing good things, that if they just live a good life and do enough good things, then God will be pleased with them and will usher them into his kingdom when they die. People who believe that by their own good works, their own good effort, their own religious activity, they can enter the kingdom of God by being good enough, by being righteous enough, by being moral enough. God will be pleased enough with them to let them enter his kingdom in eternity. And then there's a third category of people, people who look at themselves and who look at God and who know that there is no way that they could ever be good enough, that they could ever be righteous enough, who know that there's no amount of good works or religious activity that they can do that's going to come anywhere near to overcoming the mountain of sin that they've accumulated in their account. They know that their only hope is that God would do for them what they could never possibly do for themselves that God would be merciful to them in spite of their sin and that he would by his own work and by his own grace overcome their debt on their behalf. And everybody that we know really fits into one of those three categories. There are people who either outright reject God or aren't concerned about that, have no concern about the things of God, or there are people who do have some concerns and think the way to enter is by doing good things and by being religious, or the third category that I just mentioned. And it is to this issue that Jesus speaks this parable. He says it right at the very beginning. He tells this parable to some who are in that second category, people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated other people with contempt. It is to those people that this story, Jesus tells, is aimed. And there was no lack of those people in his audience. Perhaps the majority of those listening on this particular day when Jesus told this story fit into category number two. It was the prevailing religious teaching of their day. If they listened to the religious leaders of their day, that's what they believed. And it was the most, the most of those folks who were gathered that day who heard this story fit into that second category. They believed that they were good enough to enter God's kingdom and yet they were utterly lost and headed for an eternal hell. I think it could be said that there is a large, a large component of those who attend Christian churches in our culture who fit that category as well. Maybe it looks a little different, maybe it manifests a little different, maybe it's articulated a little differently now than it would have been in the first century, but there is still a goodly portion of people who are faithful, church-going, morally good people who in one way or another, when it all boils down, fit into that category number two. They believe that, that at the end of their life, when they stand before God, what really is going to be the, the thing that, that puts them over the edge is their morality and their religious activity. That their case that they can plead before God is, I've been a very moral person, I've been a good person, I've been better than most, and I've been very religious. I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, I did good things, I served in the children's ministry, I did this and I did that, I went on a mission trip, and I I raised my children in a way that was meant to, 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 to teach them to be moral and to be holy in their conduct. It is to those people that this story is meant. And it is the most foundational principle for what it means to be a Christian. It's taught in this parable. And yet it is the most overlooked. And Jesus tells us this truth, and he describes it for us in very vivid language, in a very clear story that is not hard to grasp, whether you're in the first century or in our century. 
And so we'll look at this parable, sort of, we'll just kind of lay it out as Jesus rolls it out. It's a, it's a parable that is, a, that, that is meant to have stark contrast from start to, to finish. There, there are two people who are involved. There's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector. We're going to watch as Jesus unfolds the story. These two men are going to go up to the temple to pray. And they are going to walk into the temple and they're going to assume two different positions in the space. And they're going to offer two very different kinds of prayers to God. And they are going to walk away in two very different positions in relation to God. And the contrast couldn't be more stark between the two. So let's look at the people right at the outset. Jesus gives them to us in verse 10. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee the other, a tax collector. Now, if you've been traveling with us through Luke's gospel, we've run into Pharisees quite frequently, and we've run into tax collectors on occasion. But in case you haven't been with us, uh, just a quick summary of what would have come immediately to mind in the, the minds of Jesus' listeners when he tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. We've seen them time and time again in Luke's gospel. We already know that they were self-centered, they were self-righteous, they were corrupt, they were pious, they were proud of themselves. They were very, very narcissistic, self-centered individuals. They had taken God's very simple law and they had turned it into volumes and volumes and volumes of man-made laws that they then uh, mercilessly imposed on everybody around them. They were experts at keeping all the little details of the law while also being experts at pointing out everybody else's failure to keep the little details of the law. I mean, just genuinely great people to be around, right? They loved to make a, a spectacle of their obedience in public. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus addresses this. Um, he, he talks about how they love to stand and, and pray in public for people to see them. He calls them hypocrites. These men were the, the religious elites of their society. These were the, the men that, that the people looked up to as the most committed, the most spiritual people in their culture. Now, it's easy for us to, to, from our position in history and our understanding of the New Testament, to sort of look back with a sort of a lens on how we understand who these people were to be. But if you had heard this story when Jesus told it, there is no negative connotation that would have come into your mind when Jesus starts telling a story about a Pharisee. You would have thought genuinely that Pharisees were the most spiritual people in your culture. They were the most religious. They were the people you looked up to. They were the people that you wanted to aspire to be like in your spiritual walk. And so Jesus tells a story that involves one of these men. The other was a tax collector. Again, uh, in, in the minds of the people, all sorts of images immediately popped in their minds when Jesus starts talking about a tax collector. Tax collectors were the lowlifes of society. They were people who had bought tax franchises from the Romans, and so they were hated by their, their, their countrymen because they were largely Jews who had purchased these tax franchises from the Romans, and they went around collecting taxes, and everybody loves people who come and collect taxes from them, right? I mean, it's pretty close to that time, and you probably just paid some. Thankfully, nobody knocked on your door and beat them out of you. You probably went online and clicked some clicks on your computer and, you know, some software generated that and then some bank draft went to the IRS and your money went away. So there was no individual there who was beating it out of you. But in the first century, that's how it worked. Jews bought franchises to collect taxes and they went around the city knocking on doors and they would collect taxes. And what they routinely did was they collected more than the Romans wanted in taxes. And the more they collected above what the Romans really needed and wanted in taxes, whatever the difference was, they got to keep and put in their pockets. And that was how they themselves got rich. They would collect more than the tax that was due, and they kept that to enrich themselves. And so not only did people hate them because they were sellouts to the Romans, but they hated them because they were also extortioners who beat money out of you uh, at, the, at the end of a sword of a Roman soldier to enrich themselves. So it's not just that they were, though, that, that was their profession and that that's how they were seen. It was also the company that they hung around that made them even more hated. Uh, it, it, was, it was the people that they were around, the, sort of the, the, the most hated and despised of the culture uh, were the kind of people that they hung around. 
They surrounded themselves, we could say, with sort of the scum of the earth, if that's what you, uh, if you were a first century Jew, you would think of them that way. They hung around with the riffraff, people like adulterers and prostitutes and people who were sexually immoral and folks like that. They were the hated and despised people in their culture. They were the lowest of the low. They were excluded from all religious life. They were excluded from all social life. They were not the people that you hung around with. They were viewed as traitors to their nation and to their religion. So if Jesus wanted to tell a story, and he wanted to illustrate the most uh, defiled people imaginable to his listeners, he would choose a tax collector. And that's precisely what he intends to communicate with this individual. To Jesus' audience, this tax collector would be the person who was the farthest possible from God. You couldn't be further away from God than a tax collector. You couldn't have imagined a worse sinner in the culture than a tax collector. So Jesus here, right at the outset, introduces two people, and he couldn't have chosen a greater contrast between the two. On the one hand, you have the most righteous person that the Jews could have imagined, and on the other hand, you have the most unrighteous person that the Jews could have imagined. On the one hand, you have the most moral person that his audience could have imagined, and on the other hand, you have the most immoral person that they could have imagined. On the one hand, you have the most respected individual that Jesus could have imagined or that people could have imagined. On the other hand, you have the most irrespectable person. If there was ever a person who was a shoe-in for heaven, it was the Pharisee. If there was anybody in the culture who had no chance, no shot, no way ever of getting into heaven, it was the tax collector. And it is these two people that Jesus tells us went up to the temple to pray. Daily prayers. You could go to the temple anytime you wanted to and pray. But twice a day, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., there was an organized sacrificial service that took place that you could attend. And that was where largely the people gathered, faithful Jews gathered, particularly if you were in the vicinity of Jerusalem. You'd go around 9 o'clock in the morning and around 3 p.m. and you'd gather with the rest of your people to worship and to be a part of the sacrifice and to be a part of the worship that took place every day. You know, here it is in in our day and we, we worship once on Sunday morning and everything in the world gets in the way, right? But imagine twice a day, every day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m. That's what they did. A morning sacrifice, an evening sacrifice. It was prescribed in Leviticus 1, and the people would go up every day, and they would do this. And it was at that, those, those times that a blood sacrifice was offered as an atonement to God for the sins of the people. A very, very important part of their religious life. And it was a common, everyday scene. Everybody knew what happened at 9 and 3. It was an easy scene for them to imagine. And so Jesus says... Let me tell you a story. There are these two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they're walking together up toward the temple to pray. People would have been hanging on the edge of their seat. Well, how's this going to turn out? How is this going to work out? A Pharisee and a tax collector going to the temple to pray. What's going to happen when they get there? Well, he goes on to tell us what happens to get, when they get there. They get there, and they take up their positions in the temple. And we're told the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. So the idea is that the Pharisee goes in and he's standing up and he's praying out loud. Now, as we read the text, it's it's kind of hard to get from our English translation. It says the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Uh, If you look at some of the other translations like the New American Standard, it tells us the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. So the idea here is that this guy has positioned himself in such a way that he is standing and he's praying out loud to himself. And as we hear the content of his prayer, he's praying about himself. In his prayer, he's only going to mention God one time, and that's right at the outset, and he's going to mention himself four times. It's actually not a prayer at all to God. It's a, it's a, a message to the crowd that's listening to him pray about how righteous he is. 
It's not a prayer to God. It's a self-congratulatory speech that's under the guise of prayer. He gives God no praise. He asks God for nothing. He doesn't ask for mercy. He doesn't ask for grace. He doesn't ask for help. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He doesn't ask for any of those things because he doesn't believe that he needs any of these things. So he, he mentions God right at the beginning. He just simply starts his prayer by saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other filthy people in the room. That's a way to endear everybody, isn't it? Can you imagine if Sean Harkness had stood up here this morning and started his prayer that way? Dear God, I'm thankful that I'm not like all these other filthy sinners in the room. All these scumbags in the room. Thank you, God, that you've made me not like them. Everybody's eyes would have opened up really quickly. What happened to Sean? Where's the trap door? Somebody pull him off. But that's how this Pharisee begins his prayer. Uh, he, 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 that's the only time he refers to God. God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. And it's likely that he positions himself up towards the very front of the room as near as possible to the holy place, as near as possible to the, to the, the presence of the Lord in the space. Likely he saw himself as, as being worthy of being in the front of the room. Because when he looked at himself compared to everybody else, he thought he was the one most worthy to be nearest to God. He likely also positioned himself away from everybody else. That was sort of the way the Pharisees operated in their daily life. They didn't want to get too near any of those filthy sinners because if they were to accidentally touch one of the filthy sinners, they would then be defiled. So they kept sinners away. And that was their great criticism of Jesus, wasn't it? That he hangs around with sinners. He eats with sinners. He laughs with sinners. He talks with sinners. He gets too close to them. We would never do anything like that. Even in the worship, they wouldn't do that. So he positions himself at the beginning toward the front of the room as near to God and as away from far away from sinners as possible and we're told he's standing there's nothing wrong with standing to pray that was an acceptable position of prayer uh, Jesus mentions that to us here in the story because it's in stark contrast to the way the other man positions himself but the idea here is this Pharisee is standing with his arms lifted up, with his head pointed up to heaven in the front of the room, as near to God as he could possibly be, looking God in the eye, as though God should be very happy that his favorite student has entered the room. Can you picture that in your mind? Can you see the Pharisee doing that? I mean, we have a humble church here. Nobody sits on the front row. But this guy would have been the guy in the front row, in the middle. But the contrast couldn't be more with the Pharisee to the tax collector. We're told in verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off, or the NIV translates it, the tax collector stood at a distance where the Pharisee got as close as he could to the holy place, and he got up as far as he could, as close to God as he could, because in his own mind, that's where he belonged. That's where he wants people to see him. He believes he deserves it. He believes that he's earned it. On the other hand, the tax collector, is he's far off in the back corner, being as, as inconspicuous as possible. He's way off on the, on the outer edge, on the fringe of the room. And his very position tells you what's going on in his mind. He knows that he doesn't deserve to be anywhere near the front of the room. He knows he has no business being anywhere near the presence of God. He feels guilty and he feels ashamed even being in the place to begin with. And so he's positioned himself sort of in a nook, in a corner, as far away as possible. He knows he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. He knows he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of people who live righteously. He has no right to draw near to God. He's got this sense of humility about him, this sense of alienation, this sense of alienation from the people of God and from the presence of God that is displayed in how he positions himself in the room. Not only is he far off, but we're told he wouldn't even look up to heaven. Now, how's the Pharisee praying? You remember, he's standing in the front of the room with his hands up in the air and his face looking up like he's looking God in the eye. God, here I am, your student, I'm here. This guy is in the back of the room, far off, and we're told he would not even look up toward heaven, his face to the ground. 
He's a man who's overwhelmed with his guilt. He's overwhelmed with shame. He knows that he's unworthy. He knows that he's a cheat. He knows that he's a swindler. He knows that he's an extortioner. He knows the kind of man that he is. And he knows the kind of God that is worshipped in that space. And he knows that the gap is so far that he could never cross it. There's not even a hint, it seems, in the way he positions himself of of sort of this attitude that says, well, you know, I I know that I'm a sinner, but at least I'm here in the temple. You know, it's better than most of the other tax collectors. There's not even that kind of thing going on in his heart. He is a man who's in the back with his eyes down, sort of huddling in the corner, filled with shame and guilt and alienation from God. A healthy fear of God's judgment feeling the full weight of his own brokenness and his own sinfulness. If that isn't enough, we're told he's he's beating his chest. Nobody does that here. In our culture, you don't walk around beating your chest. But in theirs, it was a way of expressing the most extreme sorrow and grief. If something devastating happened to you in your life, your child dies, your spouse is killed in an accident, it's the way of expressing sorrow and grief in its most extreme form was just to beat your chest. And that's what this man is doing in the back of the worship center of the temple. He's just overcome, it seems, with this intense clarity of his own unholiness in, in light of God's extreme holiness. He's crushed and he's humbled as a man. Very, very different people, right? Very, very different people positions in the room that says a lot about what's happening in them. But if that doesn't tell us what we need to know, the content of their prayers tells us everything, doesn't it? The Pharisee prays this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, that first statement, right? It's a a confession, an open confession of his own worthiness and his own righteousness. God, I thank you that I'm so much better than all these other people. I thank you, God, that I'm I'm good enough to have a relationship with you. I thank you that I'm, I'm good enough and moral enough to be here in your temple. I thank you that I'm good enough to be standing up near this holy place. I, I thank you that I'm good enough to be an example of, of piety and religion for all these other people to see. I thank you that I'm, I'm good enough to set the standard for everybody else in the room. And if that wasn't clear enough, he gets more specific about how good he really is. And he explains to everybody in the room how moral he is. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. He compares himself to the people that he despises. God, I'm thankful that I'm not like these other people. I'm honest. I'm I'm faithful to my wife. I'm I'm a genuinely good guy. Not like all these other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Not like all these other sinners. And if that isn't bad enough, I mean, the the arrogance is pretty astounding, right? In the middle of saying that, it's as though he's looking around the room and spots the tax collector. God, I'm thankful that I'm not like robbers and evildoers and adulterers. You know, like that tax collector back there. How would you like it if Sean's prayer went that way? God, I'm thankful that I am not like all these other scumbag sinners in the room. Like Ben over there. I mean, that's audacious, isn't it? But that's what he does. He sees a great illustration of exactly the kind of person that he's not. It's a a form of obnoxious (laughs) self-righteousness. Again, he asks God for nothing. He seeks nothing from God. He needs nothing from God. He just wants everybody to hear how morally righteous he is. And if it isn't good enough for everybody to know how moral he is and what a good guy he is and what a good man he is and how good his behavior is, he explains to him how religious he is. He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Isn't that great? God, not only am I moral, but I'm very religious. Look at all this fasting I do. The Bible, the Old Testament up to this point, had required only one fast a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. If you were a faithful Jew, you were required by God to fast one time a year. You, with, you, 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 you kind of withheld food from sunrise to sunset once a year on the Day of Atonement. 
But not this guy, right? Not this guy. What does he say about himself? He says, I fast twice a week. Twice a week. He wants God to know, listen, not only am I religious, I'm more religious than everybody else. I go above and beyond the rules. Like, I know I only need to do this once a, once a year, God, but I'm doing it twice a week. I'm an overachiever in the category of religion. The Pharisees had a great way of doing this, too. They would go on, 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 uh, on Mondays and Thursdays, and they would position themselves in the markets because that was the day, those were the days most people went to the market, and there was, the more crowds were there. And they would stand on the street corner and throw ashes on their head, and they'd look really hungry. So everybody would see them and go, oh, look at that guy. Look at that guy over there. He's, he's very religious. He's fasting today while we're at the market buying our food. Got to go above and beyond in the category of religion. If you want me to do it once a year, I'll do it twice a week. He's very proud of that. He says, I, 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 I give a tenth of all that I get. He starts talking about his tithing. He starts talking about his giving. I, I give a tenth of everything that I get. I, I give one-tenth of every single thing that I get. Even, we see in Matthew 23, like spices and mint and dill, things that weren't even required to be tithed upon, they tithed upon. God, not only am I giving, not only am I giving you back what you require of me, but I'm going way above and beyond and giving you more. Giving you more. A very, very religious person. Aren't you just drawn to this Pharisee? Don't you just want to have lunch with him? You just hang out at his house on the weekends so he can tell you how religious and how moral he is and make you feel miserable about yourself? Before we're too hard on this particular fictional Pharisee, although he was representative of genuine Pharisees, it is helpful for us to pause and look within ourselves, isn't it? Because while our, our, our hypocrisy and self-righteousness may not be as outrageous as his, the roots of that stuff can easily find a way into our hearts, can it? J.C. Ryle says this. He says, we're all naturally self-righteous. It's the family disease of all the children of Adam. From the highest to the lowest, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. We secretly flatter ourselves that we're not so bad as some and that we have something to recommend us to the favor of God. It may not be as outrageous as that Pharisee, but there are secret times when we think, man, I'm, I'm really not that bad. I mean, I'm, I may be, maybe I'm even better than most. Maybe I'm better than most in my office. Might even be better than most of those people at that church. I mean, I'm there more than they are. I, I'm here on Sundays, and I go to a city group, and I participated in this, and I give my tithes and offerings and so on. How easy it is for that stuff to sort of root into our hearts. But the issue that Jesus is getting at here is how does one enter the kingdom of God? And on what terms does one enter the kingdom of God? Is it possible to enter on good works and religion, or is it not possible? And that is really the big lie that dominated the first century world, and it's the big lie that dominates our world. The lie that says that if you want to get to heaven, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to get into God's kingdom, then the way to do that is to be a good person, and to be a moral person, and to be a religious person. It's to stop doing bad things, it's to start doing good things, and it's to go to church and be active and to participate and to give your time and to give your money, and to give your effort. That if you're moral and religious enough, you can achieve salvation. That if you're moral and religious enough, you can escape divine punishment. That if you're moral and you're religious enough, you can become acceptable to God. And this parable is meant to be heard by people who believe that lie. Perhaps some even in this room who believed it. And the distinction is seen most clearly when we hear the prayer of this tax collector. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The New American Standard translates that prayer, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I mean, it's a very different prayer than the other, right? A very different prayer. It's short, it's to the point, and it's clear. The only thing that I can say to God in his space, in his worship, is God, my only hope is that you will be merciful to me, the worst sinner in the room. 
I have no morality to exalt before you like that guy up at the front. I have no religion to offer up to you like that guy in the front. My only hope is that you would be a God of mercy and that you would be merciful to me. If not, I'm done. I have no hope. This word merciful, translated be merciful, is a very unusual word in the New Testament. It's not used except in one other place. And it's a word that means specifically to propitiate or to expiate. And those are theological words that we don't use a lot in our common language, so let me explain them for you. To expiate simply refers to the covering of sin. And propitiate refers to the turning away of God's wrath. So when he's saying, God, be merciful to me, he's not just offering a general plea for mercy. He is in the temple, and things have just been slaughtered at the altar, and blood has just been shed. And all of that was symbolic of expiation and propitiation. When they slaughtered animals there in the worship space in the temple, there was a lot going on. It symbolized at least two things. The people would lay their hands on the animals, and symbolically, it was their, their sin was being transferred to the animal. And as that animal is slaughtered there at the altar, it was symbolic of God covering over their sin because their sin has now been transferred to the animal. And it was also symbolic of propitiation, the turning away of God's wrath, because as that sin is transferred to the animal and, and the death comes to the animal, the death penalty that is on them from God for their sin, that wrath of God is now turned away because of the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice that was offered at the altar. So everything that's happening in the temple worship is symbolic of expiation and of propitiation, of the covering of sin and the turning away of God's wrath. And so when this guy in the back of the room with his face to the floor says out of his own lips, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He is talking the language of atonement. He is saying, God, I'm in this space, and all these animals have been slaughtered, and it's all symbolic about turning away your wrath and covering over sin. My only hope is that somehow, by your divine mercy, what happened at that altar can be applied to my life. Because if it isn't, I'm done, and I have no hope. That's the only chance I've got is that you would be merciful like that. That by some atoning sacrifice, you would cover over my rank sinfulness and you would turn away your wrath. Because I have no other means to make that happen. I'm not good enough. In fact, I'm pretty wretched. And I'm not religious enough. In fact, I'm not religious at all. My only hope is that you'd be merciful. I'm a wretched sinner. I'm unworthy to stand near you. I'm unworthy to look up to you. I'm in profound anguish and agony over my sin. And I need atonement to be applied to me. That's my only chance. Make an atonement for me, a sinner. Well, there couldn't be a bigger contrast, could there, between those two? I mean, you can sort of see it in your mind if you think about it, can't you? This poor fellow in the back. He's a person that when he walked in the room, everybody's looking at him going, what is that guy doing here? What right does he have to walk into this church building? I know what he's like. And this is where the story gets shocking for anybody who would have heard it in the first century. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. What a statement. A tax collector walked out of the room justified. To be justified means to be declared not guilty by God. To be positioned as not guilty legally before God. It's to have your sin covered and the wrath of God turned away. Expiation and propitiation. Of the two, when they walked out the door, which one was justified? Which one entered the kingdom of God? The tax collector and not the Pharisee. You would have heard a gasp in the audience when Jesus said that. What do you mean that guy walked away justified and not the other? 
You're telling us that the most religious, most spiritual person that we look up to in the world is lost and dying and going to hell? And Jesus says, that's right. And you're telling us this person that we despise and hate, who we think has no business even being in the room, is the one who's going to enter the kingdom of God? That's right. That's right. How is that? Because there's only one of the two that enters on God's terms. A humble penitence that throws itself upon the mercy of God as its only hope. The person who looks to their own righteousness and their own morality and their own religious activity walks away very moral and very religious and very damned to hell. That's the story that Jesus tells. And it's shocking. It's shocking at its core. In Jesus' day and in our day, there are very moral people, very religious people who are dying and going to hell and think they're on their way to heaven. That's the warning. Well, I sort of wrap this up with some truths and then a sort of a diagnostic tool for you. What are the simple truths that come out of this thing? Some simple gospel truths that sort of can wrap up the message that Jesus is trying to tell here. Let me give them to you sort of as a bullet point list that you can write down. We won't spend a lot of time on them because I think they're really, really obvious. The first one is simply this. True repentance recognizes that we are all sinners who deserve hell. People who truly enter the kingdom of God start at this place. A recognition that they are a sinner who deserves hell. You don't get into the kingdom of God without coming to terms with the reality that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including you. No matter how religious you are, no matter how moral you are, no matter how good you are, no matter how good people think you are, at the end of the day, you are a sinner who is accountable for your sin and destined for an eternity in hell apart from the grace and mercy of God. The Pharisee didn't get past number one. The tax collector did. We're all sinners who deserve hell. And our only hope is the mercy of God. Number two, we have to recognize that we cannot earn our salvation by good works. Listen, let me tell you something. If you're here this morning thinking that you're going to be good enough to enter the kingdom of God, you're a fool. You cannot be good enough. And you will never be good enough to enter the kingdom of God. If you're counting on your good works and your morality, it will never, ever get you in. That is the consistent theme of the New Testament. Over and over and over again, Jesus brings that point home. It's not good people that get into heaven. It's really bad people who realize they're really bad. Third, we have to recognize that to be saved, God must do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Like the tax collector, our only hope is the mercy of God. That God would do for us something that we cannot do for ourselves. That God would offer an atoning sacrifice on our behalf in order to cover our sin and to turn away his wrath. Now, we don't live in the first century. We live in the year 2023. We're on the other side of the cross. We don't look to an altar where lambs are slaughtered. We look to the cross of Jesus Christ where the Son of God, the Lamb of God, gave his, his own life on a cross to do that very thing for us. We look to the cross of Jesus where the Son of God died in our place, where our sin can be transferred to his account and our sin covered up and his death take the place of our death, the wrath of God being turned away from us and turned toward him. The only way that a person is saved is by faith in what Christ has done on the cross on our behalf. He is the atoning sacrifice. Our only hope is to say to God, God, I cannot save myself. I can't be moral enough. I cannot be religious enough. The only I have hope I have is that you would be merciful, that you would atone for my sin, and that the sacrifice of Jesus would be applied to my life. Then I might be saved. That's my only choice and my only hope. If that doesn't happen, I'm done for. I'm done for. I have to recognize that the only way to be saved is to realize that what Christ has done for us has to be applied to our account or all of our works are useless and worthless and we are hopeless. And there's a final message here that's worth paying attention to and it's this spiritual pride has a blinding effect on men. It's a blinding effect on man. I already mentioned number four. Spiritual pride is a blinding effect on people. 
That Pharisee genuinely believed, as did the real Pharisees, that they were right with God. Their pride had blinded them to that reality. And spiritual pride can blind people like me and people like you as well. It can cause us to, to forget how desperate our need for God is. It can, it can cause us to forget how desperately we need God every single day to save us. We can forget how desperately we need God every single day to sustain us. We can forget how desperately we need God every day to keep us on the right path. And we can begin to believe that we can keep ourselves and that we can sustain ourselves. That we don't really need much from Him. Our time is up, but let me just give you this sort of 10 signs of self righteousness. Sort of 10 signs that these roots of that Pharisee's belief system might have found a way into your heart. It's this little diagnostic tool that you can just sort of, sort of look at your own self and ask, do any of these things, do they, do they hit home in my life? What does a self-righteous person really look like? Well, quite frequently, self-righteous people look like people who lack compassion for struggling sinners. We see that in that Pharisee, don't we? He had no compassion for that tax collector. He had nothing but condemnation and judgment for him. And self-righteous people quite frequently behave that way. They live with no compassion for sinners. No genuine concern about people who are far from God and living wretched lives and dealing with the consequences of that. Self-righteous people often, often reject correction. They don't want anybody to tell them that they're doing anything wrong. And they bow up. If anybody dare to question anything about the way they live or what they believe. Self-righteous people love to give a list of good works and they love to be recognized and praised by men and those two things often go together. They like to tell everybody know how religious and how moral and how good they are and they love for other people to applaud that and to praise that. Self-righteous people quite frequently get angry and they question God when suffering comes into their life. And that anger and that questioning of God comes from a place of, God, I don't deserve this. I'm a pretty good person. I do all these good things, and I'm very religious. Why would you bring this suffering into my life? I don't deserve this. Sign of self-righteousness. Self-righteous people enjoy comparing themselves with other people, and they're prone to legalism. They like the rules, and they like to keep the rules. Quick to point out the faults in others. Self-righteous people live out a superficial spirituality. What I mean by a superficial spirituality is they, they, they really zero in on, all the, uh, on fighting all the public sins that are noticeable to other people. And they get really good at being good at those things, but all the things that nobody sees, all the secret habits of a godly life, it's a different story. And then finally, Confession of sin is largely absent from the life of the self-righteous. Self-righteous people don't confess sin because they don't really think they have that much to confess because they think they're pretty good people in general. How about that list? There's more that we could add to that. Almost every one of those we see, in fact, all of them, I think we could say, are exemplified by that Pharisee. Do the roots of any of that find a home in your heart? As you read through that list, do any of those things sort of tinge your heart to where you go, ooh, yeah, I see that. Is that kind of self-righteousness finding a home inside of you? So there's two questions that need to be asked this morning and answered of you and of me and of anybody who hears this. Number one, what am I counting on to get me into the kingdom of God? If it's anything other than the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, if it's anything other than the mercy of God and atoning for my sin through the death of Jesus, then it's a faulty foundation that will not get me in. And if that's not what you're counting on this morning, then right this moment, you need to repent of your sin, you need to repent of your self-righteousness, and you need to throw yourself on the mercy of God because it's your only hope. If you've already done that in your life and you've been walking with the Lord for some time, then the second way, I guess, to look at this is to examine your own heart in light of this list and ask the question, do I see self-righteousness finding roots in my heart? Even though I'm counting on Christ to save me and I'm look, not looking at these things for my salvation, they're present and 
they're strangling me spiritually. And they're dishonoring to the Lord. And they're unhelpful to the advancement of his kingdom. If that's the case, then maybe you just need to repent of those things this morning and ask God to give you a true humility like this Pharisee. One who genuinely looks up to God and says, God, be merciful to me. I'm the worst sinner that I know. Let's pray. Lord, that's true, I know, of my own life. I am absolutely the worst sinner that I know. Because I know all my sin. I don't know anybody else's. But I know all of mine. And I know it's enough to condemn me to hell. And I know that I could never do enough good things. I could never preach enough sermons. I could never attend enough church services to overcome the debt of sin that I have. I know that I can't be good enough and moral enough. I know I can't be religious enough. There's no way. The mountain of my sin is way too high. Way too high. In fact, I'm painfully aware of the fact that I have no business on my own merit even being with God's people, much less leading worship. My only hope is that you would apply the atonement of Christ to my life that the blood shed by the Lamb of God would take away my sins and cover them and would sufficiently turn away your wrath from my life. But I'm thankful that you've assured me by your word that that's precisely what happens when I place my faith and trust in Jesus. And I pray that if there's anybody in this room who has not entered your kingdom on those terms, that they would do that right this very minute, that they would not wait another second. Lord, I pray that you would crush our spiritual pride this morning. That as we walk out of this place, we would not only walk away justified, but we would walk away, Lord, with a humble heart that's compassionate towards sinners, that cares only about what you think and not what other people think, that compares ourselves only to the righteousness of Christ and not everybody else's life and behavior. That is open to correction. A life that's filled with confession. life that likes to see all the applause go to you. It's only by your spirit that we'll, our eyes will be open to see these things. And so Holy Spirit, I pray in this room you'd open our eyes to the truth and that we would respond by faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.